This episode is presented by MyBookie.ag. Welcome back to the MMA Meeting Let's Talk with Weasel podcast where we talk all things MMA and I hope you guys are having an awesome day. Now for those who've been asking um, regarding my mother, my mom went to the hospital about two and a half weeks ago because of a suboccipital craniotomy, which is a surgery to remove an acoustic neuroma or some kind of tumor or growth that's damaging the balance or hearing nerve. You know, it just happens. It's a very good thing. It was benign. It wasn't cancerous. And you know, she's had it for like 15, 20 years without even knowing just randomly, right? So I really encourage anybody get checked up. She only found this through an MRI, and if she didn't get that, she probably would have never found out. She had some tumor growing on her balancing hearing or facial nerve, and it would have kept growing and growing, and eventually would have became dangerous. So she went through that surgery. She was in the hospital for two and a half weeks, which is not normal because she did have some complications afterwards. Some cerebral spinal fluid was leaking and all sort of stuff. It was actually leaking a lot, causing a lot of pressure on her head. It's great news that she's finally coming home today. So I'm really happy about that. Thank all of you guys for your support, for your prayers. I appreciate all of it, man. You guys are absolutely the best. I mean, it means a lot to me, man. And through this, I suggest, man, get checked up at the doctor. You never know some kind of unlucky thing could show up. You never know what can happen. So it's really good to check your health, check all that stuff, man, because I wouldn't want anybody else to just discover something so late. And from all this, you know, this is why I took a little bit of time off, took some days off. But now everything turns out to be great, successful. She's recovering, doing very well. And let's get right into MMA. So, some things are going on here. So, the first thing I see is Stipe Miocic is actually sidelined until 2020 because of eye injury. So, we know about the Jeremy Stevens thing. Yair Rodriguez still going off like a little bit immature, you know, <laughs> to say it mildly. Kind of blaming Jeremy Stevens, getting mad at Stevens when he's the one that poked Jeremy Stevens in the eye. And now a lot of people are, seem to be turning on Yari Rodriguez. You know, turning down Zabit Magomedsharipov to the point where he was getting cut from the UFC. And now poking Stevens in the eye and acting kind of childish out there without knowing that he's the one that did it. He didn't punch him in the eye. You swiped at his eye in a very awkward manner. But Stephen Miocic is suffering a retina injury because of the multiple eye pokes from Daniel Cormier. And for the last two fights, DC has been known now as an eye poker, right? John Jones, you know, the master of eye poking, he mastered that technique. DC fought him twice. He probably picked up some things in their fights or in or studying John Jones and goes and starts attacking Stipe's eyes. I mean, now DC's gonna have to wait a bit until he gets a rematch. He did get TKO, did get some head trauma from Stipe, so maybe some time off for DC does him good, but we don't know when is gonna come back. If we know anything about retina injuries from Michael Bisping, it could take a while, man. That's just unfortunate. I don't want anybody to suffer anything Michael Bisping did. I know he doesn't want that either. It's really bad to fight with one eye until you get a surgery or something like that to fix it. And Stipe is most likely towards the end of his career. Not at the end, but he's getting towards that end. And DC has like one fight left or something like that. So yeah, we'll see how this plays out. We got to do something though. I know about this new glove design that they've been talking about. I think Joe Rogan mentioned it before too. Let's get this going, right? I mean, we just had two eye pokes. One is a big heavyweight main event. The champion suffering from multiple of those eye pokes in the Stevens and Yair situation, which cut a main event to 15 seconds because of an eye poke. So new glove design, or let's go back to Pride because we don't remember any eye pokes happening in Pride, right? And I guess it's because of the gloves, how they're shaped. I think the UFC gloves actually cause your fingers to extend open naturally because of how they're stitched or how they're designed. They kind of just force your hand open. But the pride gloves, if you remember, it always forced their hands to close in a little bit, almost like they're making a fist at all times. But that's just a natural design of the glove. So let's go back to pride gloves. Why not? They look cool too. But 
That's that's unfortunate, man. Because we know Francis Aganu is coming up there for a title shot. He already beat everybody. What is he gonna do now? Is he gonna be fighting John Jones? I mean, that's the only thing that would make sense for Francis Aganu because what fight does he have left? Fight Derek Lewis, I guess. I mean, because I know Engano wants to avenge a loss. I think a fight with Derek Lewis is the only fight Engano would be anything up for. Just because he wants to right that wrong, and that's the only reason. If Stipe comes by like mid 2020, let's say, fights Cormier, beats Cormier, whatever happens there, it's the rubber match, there should be no rematches after that, and Gano's gonna fight the champion like end of next year. I know he doesn't want that, so chances are Ngannou might fight a couple times, a few times, until he gets that title shot, and this is crazy. And in other news, Khabib Nurmagomedov is saying that his next fight is going to be in Russia. He's about 80% sure. You know, he's been having negotiations and stuff like that, and I think the Russia card would have to happen next year then, because it seems like everything else is booked, unless they make that fight night A main event that's happening in Russia. I don't know if they would do that, but they did move the John Jones thing, right? They moved John Jones' fight from Las Vegas to California because of complications, Moving a fight night to a pay-per-view might be a little bit different, a little bit more difficult to do, but it's still in Russia, so why not just move it a little bit to St. Petersburg, which is a stadium that Khabib wants to fight in. It can seat 75,000 people, and you bet it's going to fill up pretty quickly, right? And Habib is expecting Tony Ferguson. We're all expecting Tony Ferguson. We should not discuss anybody else. I know a lot of people are discussing GSP. And for some reason, Errol Hawani has been talking about GSP a lot. I understand it's his guy. It's the Canadian superstar. But come on, man. Let's not talk about GSP now. Let's talk about him after. Even GSP said Tony Ferguson's next. He'll wait afterward. If Tony does not get this fight, it'll be one of the biggest travesties in sports, period. I mean, in my opinion, one of the best fights they can make on paper in UFC history, we're talking about the two greatest lightweights of all time, in their prime, defeated everybody on 12 plus win streaks, finishing most of their opponents, finishing most of their opponents, defeating champions, defeating former champions, have been scheduled to fight each other four times already, never happened, and they only rolls in the division afterward, I mean, come on, there is no other fight that makes more sense than Habib versus Tony, and I love GSP, man, I think GSP can skip any line besides this one, right? I would be happy to see GSP fight anybody, but not before Tony Ferguson fights Khabib. It's the only one. He can go to middleweight, fight the winner of that fight. I would be happy to see GSP over Paulo Costa. I would be happy to see GSP fight Kamaru Usman right now. I'll be happy to see him if he can go down 145 and fight Max Holloway if that can happen. You know, fight John Jones. I'd rather, you know, anything. I'll be really happy to see GSP fight anybody before the top contender. Besides this one. And man, if this fight happens in Russia, I really wonder how Tony's going to train out there. I know he's going to be watching Rocky for all day. I know he does that already. Jeremy Stevens kind of exposed some of Tony Ferguson's training regiment, which nobody really talks about that much. So Stevens said that when he was training with Tony Ferguson, they were watching Rocky Four all the time. And in the middle of the movie, Tony would like pause it and be like, hey, let's go run like five miles right now. And Tony in Russia, I know it's going to trigger some kind of mentality of his. And the videos, the training videos, all that stuff, it's going to be so cool to watch. I mean, there's going to be some great videos of Tony Ferguson running up mountains, knee deep in the snow, and at the top yelling out Habib's name or something crazy. You know, he's going to have a cabin and all that sort of stuff. I have a feeling he might even go out and seek Habib's bear that he grappled with before. I mean, Tony Ferguson's the type of guy to wrestle with Habib's bear in preparation for Habib. And you know, once Tony Ferguson gets that darts on that bear, he's going to be confident he has his fight won. I could just see the video. Tony will release a very quick darts of the bear, roll up really quickly with a fast-paced walk toward the camera, wide eyes, breathing heavy, sweaty, wags his finger at the camera once, gets really close briefly and says, 
Bears ain't shit to El Kukui, and just walks right past the camera. Man, I love Tony Ferguson, but the whole Russia thing is very interesting. It would be one of the biggest, like, hometown events for a fighter. You know what I'm saying? Like, Khabib fighting in Russia at this point, I think creates more of a hometown advantage or hometown effect than any other fighter fighting in their hometown ever in the UFC. The only place that would be somewhat relative would be Conor McGregor fighting in Ireland at this point. Right. The only thing different about that is I know uh, a lot of people don't like Connor in Ireland, whereas a lot of Russians, and there are more Russians than Irish in their respective countries, a lot of Russians like Habib, especially because Habib seems to be very cordial with Putin over there. Habib fighting in Russia would be such a massive thing, and I really wonder how the vibe is going to be. And I'm not going to lie, I keep thinking back of when Habib fought in Abu Dhabi, and it was such a different feeling. Did you guys have a different feeling watching that card? I know it's in another country, it's in another side of the world, but yeah, we've watched fights in Russia, and we've watched fights in Europe, and all that stuff. It was very different watching it in Abu Dhabi. It was like the respect at such a high level. Everybody understood what was going on. Whenever it went to the ground, everybody cheered. Whenever a position was passed, just the vibe was so different and kind of positive. And all the fighters that fought there, they said the same thing. They said it was so hospitable there. It was amazing to be there. Nobody was really the villain. If it was anybody, it was Dustin Poirier, but they gave him so much respect. It blew Dustin Poirier's mind. And as a fan watching it from home, I was able to feel that energy as well. I felt a little bit when they fought in Russia before. I felt it when they fought in China as well. And I wish other countries, man, especially the recent cards, I wish they respected the fighters and had that same vibe that places like China and Abu Dhabi had. And I wonder if Russia is going to be the same thing, man, even to Tony Ferguson. Because I know everybody respects Tony Ferguson. Not even just in MMA. I know boxing fans that respect Tony Ferguson when they watch the fight Anthony Pettis on that Connor and Habib card. Some boxing fans were saying, I don't know all the hype was before Tony Ferguson, but now I understand it. I can't wait, man. That is the most anticipated fight for me, bar none. The only thing that'll get me more anticipated than this fight would be if Fader can come back in his prime and fight DC at heavyweight. Like, that's the only fight that'll get me up anywhere near a Tony and Habib fight at this point. And something about the Jorge Masvidal and Nate Diaz press conference. So, the press conference went okay. I did expect a lot more. It seemed like Diaz didn't really want to be there, like usual, you know. But he was a lot more participating in his previous press conferences. Especially ones with Conor McGregor, because Conor was, of course, talking trash. But this one, it just seemed like they were there just to pick up a check. And I understand that. That's all good. But, I don't know. It just didn't feel exciting and stuff like that. You know, most of the time, I don't care for press conferences. I just care about the fights. And even just for this one, I know that's how this fight's going to be. I know how this pair-up is going to be. They're not going to really talk too much. And they're just going to go out and fight. But here's the thing. It's going to be a fun fight. They're two beloved fighters. Hori Maslow's one of my favorite fighters in the UFC right now. I might be in the minority here. But I really don't think it's going to be one of the best fights I've ever seen. You know? It's not going to be something that's going to blow my expectations. I think. You know, unless it does. I hope it does. But, you know, I've been watching these two guys for a while. Long time. Before Nate Diaz was even in the UFC. I've been watching these guys. And their stylistic collision is going to be pretty good. I don't think anybody's going to get finished at all. I think it's going to be a good technical battle. I don't really think a war is going to happen. I don't really think something crazy like Robbie Lawler versus Warren McDonald is going to happen or something like that. You know, whenever two fighters don't talk much on the press conferences, don't really build up their fights too much. Maslow's taking most of that work here. But whenever that stuff happens, you do expect a crazy fight. Because if there's no crazy fight, this fight was just a dud in terms of entertainment like the Robbie versus Warren McDonald 2 fight they didn't talk at all they let Connor and Chad Mendez and Josie Aldo take it all you know you guys take the work we're just gonna have the best fight of all time that's why everybody loves Robbie Lawler that's why he became a name not just fighting Johnny Hendricks but he didn't have to talk 
because everybody knew he was going to bring it every single time and put on an absolute war. And he has that knockout power, all that stuff. You never knew how the fight was going to end, right? When you have that kind of fighting style that's always present to entertain, you don't need to talk much. I think with Jorge and Nate Diaz, I think, you know, talking a little bit more to get the fans a little bit more interested than they already are, which they are, I think would do it good because if this fight falls flat and it's just not that fun to watch, it's not that entertaining, I think it might hurt both their brands. And that's the only thing I'm kind of worried about a little bit. When you go and build up a fight, you cause fans to take sides pretty much. You know, it becomes like no matter how the fight ends up, I want this guy to win. And if he's winning, I'm happy. You know, that's what it goes to. And this fight's sort of like that right now. But I think they need to talk it up a little bit more because I know the casual fans are watching this, right? More casual fans are going to be watching this fight than Jorge's last fight and Nate Diaz's last fight. And it will be really good to get them on board. So it creates that my team versus your team. No matter how my team wins, I'm happy. And there's a lot of people supporting each team. By not talking up the fight, by not promoting it or building it up, you cause those casual fans to kind of stay on the outside and just hope for a very good fight. Instead of taking sides like you saw with Nate Diaz versus Connor, Habib versus Connor, Muhammad Ali back in the day with a lot of his fights, Floyd Mayweather, Floyd caused a lot of people to take the other side hoping that he would lose. And that's why people kept coming back to watch him. Just a bunch of other fighters in the past before, Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, people took sides. Most people went with Chuck Liddell. And because of Tito Ortiz's trash talking, making him the villain of the sport. Once Chuck Liddell won that fight, he became a superstar. Here's the thing, man. In this fight, again, they're causing fans to sit back and just watch for a very good fight instead of taking sides. And if it's not going to deliver that good fight they're expecting, it could hurt their future brands, right? Casual fans have a very short memory when it comes to this stuff. You need some kind of impression. And this is the biggest fight for Jorge Mazdal and one of the biggest fights for Nate Diaz. So I'm kind of looking at more on Jorge Mazdal's side. Like, he really has to show up something. He's already taking most of the work when it comes to building up this fight, but he doesn't really have a partner that's participating that well. And even him, he's not really saying too much against Nate Diaz or not saying much about this fight in general. But here's the other thing. If Masvidal goes out there and just blows right through Nate Diaz or vice versa, then this all becomes worth it, of course, right? And that's what a lot of us are trying to expect. You know, a lot of us put really high expectations on these kind of fights. And if one finishes the other in spectacular fashion or completely destroys their opposition, then that's a little bit different. Then that skyrockets their fame, especially for Masvidal, because if anybody's going to finish anybody in this fight, it's most likely going to be Masvidal finishing Nate Diaz. But I don't know, I just have a strange feeling about it. I'm not hoping that it's not going to be a good fight. I'm not doing any of that. You know, obviously, I've been talking about this fight for a while. I've been talking very high about this fight. But just lately, I'm having this feeling about it. I'm not going to lie, though. Masvidal's suit was on point. And did anybody catch the reference? He dressed up like Tony Montana from Scarface. And he's fighting a Diaz brother. You cannot script these things. How, how would this come to fruition? Someone who embodies... The Scarface persona, not really embodies it, but someone who who shows it off, comes out to the Scarface music every fight, comes out in the suit, and he's actually fighting a Diaz brother. And the guy's Cuban. Wow, man. When you really think about it, that's crazy how this came together. But if we know something about the Scarface movie, Tony Montana does die at the end. So so I don't know how that fight's going to go, man. I think Masvidal's going to win this. I think he has more tools to win. He's more dangerous. He does have this newfound killer instinct that he's even talked about how he changed when he went up to uh, welterweight, I think. And it's a scary guy, man. He's a really scary guy. And Nate Diaz, he got caught a couple times by Anthony Pettis. Might be a little bit of ring rust that got him caught like that. But his only path was to work in the clinch. And it can work against Masvidal to work in the clinch like that and try to get it to the ground and stuff. I just don't know, man. Masvidal's so tricky these days. He has so many weapons hidden, 
He can pull out anything at any given moment. Canelo versus Kovalev, that whole thing's going on. That's kind of crazy that Canelo's going up for that. I mean, he's really small compared to Kovalev, but Kovalev is on the later part of his career. I don't know, Canelo can do it. It's boxing. You know, the size doesn't matter as much in boxing as it does in MMA. Just striking in general doesn't. And you've seen that time and time again. You could see small guys going out and knocking out bigger guys all the time, but it's just when the grappling and wrestling takes part, that's when size really does matter. So I am not counting out Canelo at all. Actually, what are the betting odds to that? Oh, Canelo's actually a 4-1 favorite? I mean, I was thinking Canelo would probably win this, but not by that much. <laughs> Nowhere near that. I'd probably say Canelo should be like a 1.5 to 1 favorite. Like, maybe a minus 170, 150. Minus 400? I mean, who wouldn't put something on Kovalev? Honestly. And might as well head to mybookie.ag today. I mean, they have the best lines of any sports book in all variety of different sports. You have some big UFC cards coming up, such as the massive Robert Whittaker vs. Israel Adesanya card on UFC 243. Underlying fights on the prelims that most really have a hard time figuring out how those are going to go down. You know, precise grappling, technical takedowns, heavy-handed knockouts, savvy striking, experience. There's so much involved. There's nothing else like MMA, and there's no better way to make fights, even more exciting than to bet on them don't forget where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on so regardless of whether you're betting on mma or nfl football mybookie.ag is the best business and they've got it all i wouldn't be telling you guys to bet with them if they weren't the best do the smart thing if you're gonna bet on this football season bet with my bookie if you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If by some chance all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of the year with also amazing UFC fights up until the end of this year. Join now and my bookie will double your first deposit. Use promo code WEASEL to activate the offer. That's promo code W-E-A-S-L-E. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. So let's go to the questions now. And if you guys want to ask me any questions, you can ask me on my YouTube page under the community tab when I post questions for podcasts. Wait until I post it usually on Sunday or Monday, and then you can post it there. Or if Twitter is more convenient, you could tweet me your question and hashtag it MMA meeting. Do not forget to hashtag it MMA meeting like you'll see later in this podcast. Because if you don't, they're just going to get lost. And I really want to read your questions. So starting with the most liked question on YouTube. Amanda Davis, if DC beats Stipe a second time, then what happens with the belt assuming DC retires and Ghana would have to fight for the belt but it would be kind of weird having Stipe fight for the belt after losing the DC twice it would but it has to happen I mean here's the thing if Stipe goes and beats Nganu again after losing the DC twice it will hold a negative stigma to that division for a pretty long time until a new champion arises because everybody will always remember as DC was the champion he was the best fighter that got out of the division out of the sport and left his leftovers in that division and until somebody new proves themselves that they are also better than Stipe that's when it changes it's very similar to when John Jones beat DC and got stripped, suspended, all that stuff. It's a little bit different, actually. That's not as much as it would be if DC retired after beating Stipe twice because he didn't cheat. But you knew when John Jones did beat DC twice and DC still was the champion, you knew that feeling. You knew that DC really wasn't the best fighter in this division and nobody held him as, like, the champion. Most people didn't give DC that kind of credit. So the only way it would happen if Nganu goes and knocks out Stipe Miocic. 
If he doesn't do it, if he loses again, the division doesn't do that well. It'd be pretty bad. It's almost like the reason why Dana White never liked GSP to fight for belts after. Because he would beat the champion and go and retire. In this one, you just gotta wait for that next new guy because this division is littered with old, old heavyweights. So if Stipe keeps winning, that negative stigma, that weird feeling you have about a division when the absolute best fighter retires and leaves the next contender as the champion, that negative stigma is gonna carry on as long as Stipe keeps winning. And then we go to the Stats Life Productions. Hi Weasel, I have three questions that I hope you can answer. Okay, I'll go through them really quickly. You know, if you guys ask me like longer questions or multiple questions inside one comment, I'm gonna have to go through them pretty quickly. So number one, excluding Conor McGregor, if you had to trade your life with any fighter who would be, taking into account their looks, physique, lifestyle, salary, girlfriend, fight skills, public image, injuries, ethnic background, etc. If I'm gonna be honest, no one, because I never think like that personally. I never think, oh, I wanna be that fighter. I wanna, be, I wanna have his life. I, I'm not envious of anybody. Oh, okay, let's say for one day, We'll change it up. For one day, who would be cool to be like? Not Connor at this point, to be honest, because it seems like he has a lot of problems. And that even includes the money. I won't take those problems for money, you know? Maybe Brian Stan or something? Because I know Brian Stan's doing well. Everybody respects him. He's doing a lot of good in the world, it seems like. There is Stephen Miocic, one of the better just lifestyles and lives and fighting styles. But all this stuff you included, he's probably one of the best up there, besides the eye injury. That's the only thing. And also some of the brain trauma. Henry Cejudo. Aaron Sudo's pretty cool. I don't know. I don't really think about this too much, but if I would have to say, I'd probably say either Stipe or Henry. And number two, you are starting a new fight organization called Weasel Fighting Championship, WFC, and you get to take any five unranked UFC fighters to build your company around. Who are the five fighters that you take? Wow, this would be tough. So my goal would be, who do I think that's unranked right now is a good prospect that would be a future like star or you know something, uh, something special in the future and also need some exciting guys. Man, I wish Zabit was still unranked. I would pick him all day. Is Askar Eskarov ranked? If he's not ranked, I'd pick him. I understand it's kind of a cop-up because he just fought in the UFC. But technically, I'd pick him. Sean O'Malley, 100%. Kron Gracie as well. Probably Nathaniel Wood. I'd probably say Armin Saryukian. And Jeff Neal, maybe Sadiq Youssef. And number three, if the UFC had tag team fights, who would be the pound-for-pound pound most dominant duo? I'd probably say like a pound for pound, so no weight classes, just style and skill and stuff. Connor and Henry Cejudo probably. Adesanya and Whitaker would put any wrestler to shame. Mahashev and Habib would be a good one. And this one may not be the best, but it would definitely be the most exciting to watch. Francis Ngannou and Rumble Johnson as a team. They will leave a path of destruction unlike anything anyone's ever seen before. It would remind people of some like real life war from the casualties that those two would produce. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine a tag team of those two just going at it. They would have to put up like 10 people one night because every fight would be like 5 seconds. Boom, 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 boom. Ngannou uppercut someone out the cage. Rumble Johnson head kicks someone right through the cage. Now there's no cage. Okay, next team come in. It just carries on and carries on. And eventually just DC by himself beats both of them. And you say, I'll put my money on a duo of Tony Ferguson and Habib. Yeah, that's a great one. That'd be all team domination and violence. Keep up the great content, man. Pound for pound. Best MMA YouTuber on the planet. Thank you so much, man. And then we go to Anthony Cruz. I know if Habib beats Tony, he will be in the conversation for GOAT. But what if Tony beats Habib? Will he be in consideration? No, he won't. He will be up there. He'll obviously be the greatest lightweight of all time. I think he needs to defend it a couple times, maybe once or twice, and then he'll be put in that conversation. The only thing is, he is not undefeated. That's a big thing going against him. If he was, whatever, 29-0, whatever his record is, um, if he never lost, then yes, absolutely he would. 
but those three losses, it means a lot. You know, to be undefeated in MMA at this level, this late in the game, that's a huge accomplishment, man. I just think if Tony goes and beats Khabib, let's say he beats Dustin Poirier, and let's say he beats, like, a Conor McGregor, very similar to what Khabib beat, then yes, absolutely, you'll be in consideration as the GOAT. Right now, it'd be tough to say so. It just really would. I know if you look at it logically, and if you look at the numbers and who he's beaten, all that stuff, all the records, you could probably put out that argument, but just saying that Tony is the greatest of all time if he goes and beats Khabib, there's just some doubt to it. He needs to do a little bit more, just a little bit more. And then we go to Lander Lowe. Fighters with the best footwork in each division. Always enjoy the content, thanks. Thank you so much for the question. So, best footwork in each division. In heavyweight, i probably say Surreal Gane. He's really the only one that moves a lot these days. There is uh, Alistair Overing, but his footwork is not that intelligent at times. So right now, probably Surreal Gane. Or Gane. I don't know how to pronounce his name. At light heavyweight, i probably say maybe Nikita Krylov or even Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker has really good footwork. It's a little bit weird, a little bit funky, but so far it's been super effective. Throwing people off with just moving. That's crazy. Middleweight. There's a lot in middleweight. There's a lot. Hermanson's good. Adesanya has great footwork. Robert Whitaker has great footwork. Romero has decent footwork. Polo Costa actually has good footwork as an aggressor. He cuts off everybody very well and puts them into his game all the time. It's tough to say. It's really tough for that division. And the funny thing is they have all been caught because of some kind of error in their footwork. All of them. Jack Hermanson got knocked out by uh, Thiago Santos. Moving backwards the way he did. Robert Whitaker got dropped by Yuel Romero when taking that angle in the pocket. Adesanya got caught a couple times by Calvin Gastelum. Romero got smothered against the cage and he kind of just had to go forward and he got caught by a right hook or left hook. I forgot which punch it was. I think it was a left hook from Paulo Costa. And Costa, with his aggression, once got dropped by Yuel Romero and before got caught by Uriah Hall. So it's really hard to say, man. I'd probably say Whitaker because... His blitz and explosion from a distance is better than anybody's. And he usually does have a very good ability to exit the pocket. At welterweight, it's Steven Thompson, without a doubt. At lightweight, it is historically Conor McGregor. But in his last fight, he did not show great footwork at all. Historically, generally, I will say Conor McGregor. Featherweight has a lot of good ones. Ryan Hall has good footwork. Yair Rodriguez has great footwork. Zabit has amazing footwork. Frankie's decent. Jose Aldo has decent. Volkanovski, decent. And then there's Max Holloway. I'd probably say Holloway. Bantamweight, it's Dominic Cruz. At flyweight, it's definitely Henry Cejudo. And then women's bantamweight, a lot of people say Holly Holm, but I don't think so. Yes, she moves a lot. She's flashier than most fighters in this division with her movement. But she's just so obvious. She gets caught moving a lot. That doesn't mean it's great footwork. Just because you're moving a lot doesn't mean it's good. So I'd probably say Amanda Nunes. She has a great ability to cut off the cage. She has a great ability to move away and take angles and stuff like that when she fought Valentina Shevchenko the first time. All right, if you don't remember that fight... That's what showed Nunez's footwork. It was an amazing display of footwork. And as for flyweight, maybe Caitlin Chukagian, very similar to Holly Holmes' footwork, but she hasn't been caught. Seems very effective. That's how she usually wins her fights because she doesn't get hit. She's point fighting with a lot of her opponents and they can't really hit her. In strawweight, it's Rose. Second, I'd probably say Joanna, but right now it's Rose. Her footwork is a work of art. Then we go to Marijuana Guy. Who do you have winning these matchups? So fantasy matchups. Whitaker versus Wonderboy 2 at 185. I still do think it's a tough fight, but I say Whitaker puts him out. Wonderboy doesn't have a chin, it seems like, anymore. Getting knocked out by Anthony Pettis the way he did is pretty alarming. Fighting Whitaker at 185? Man, that's a tough fight for Wonderboy. At 170, I would say, you know, it's a lot harder of a fight. It's a very even fight. But at 185, Wonderboy's going to have to give up a lot for this one. So I would say Whitaker. Islam Makhachev versus Kevin Lee. I say Makhachev. Better striker, better mentality for the game, and that's the most important thing. Kevin Lee has all the skills, man, but just that mentality, just something's not clicking. 
coming out a little bit too cocky, a little bit too sure of himself when he should be focused on just his technique and stuff like that. Get better at everything. He doesn't kick a lot. Just a boxer, good grappler. He has to work on a little bit more than that. All right, Makashev is a good grappler with better boxing and better kicking, better knees, better elbows, better pressure, better footwork, and a better understanding of using his reach. Gregor Gillespie versus Habib Nurmagomedov. Right now, I say Habib. He has far better striking. I would say an overall better grappler. I won't say a better amateur wrestler. I'm not going to say he will take down Gregor Gillespie better or more often than Gregor will take him down. But if it gets to the ground, I would say Habib would have a major advantage. No matter on his back or on top. We have seen Habib on his back. I know Chill Sonnen said we have never seen Habib on his back. That's not true. <laughs> We've seen him on his back against Abel Trujillo. And he almost got him in multiple triangle chokes. Dominic Cruz versus Henry Cejudo, especially if we've seen like a prime Cruz, which I don't think is present anymore. I don't think that Cruz exists anymore. So at this stage, I will say Henry Cejudo probably catches him late in the fight. After some puzzling problems in the beginning, I think again, Cejudo is going to have to change up the game a little bit. Maybe keep that same karate style, but change his pace and change his pressure. And from there, maybe mix up takedowns, go up for punches over the top and stuff like that. Eventually catch Cruz. When we saw Cody Garbrandt fight Cruz, what pretty much gave Cruz so many issues in that one? Cody made Cruz the aggressor. And unlike Anderson Silva, Cruz actually took the bait and went forward and got caught multiple times because of it. Right, Silva back in the day, if he was the aggressor or forced to lead the fight, he didn't do it that much. Right, It just made it such a boring fight. Cruz will actually go forward and get caught for it. And I think Soto can do a very similar thing with a better skill set, with better overall abilities than Cody Garbrandt, involving wrestling and stuff like that. Also, who do you think is the best boxer in each division? Before I get into it, what do you mean by best boxer? The most effective boxer? That usually determines who is the best. Or the most skilled? I'm going to go with the most effective. Doesn't mean they have the prettiest technique, you know, the most textbook style, just what is the most effective and works. So I'll go Francis Ngannou, Alexander Gustafsson, Paulo Costa, Santiago Ponsonibio, Conor McGregor, Max Holloway. I would say Cody Garbrandt, but it's hard to say that these days. Right now, I'd probably say Rob Font. I'd probably go with Rob Font on this one. At flyweight, I'd probably say David Figueroa. It's not really boxing. It's more like karate, but actually most guys in this division don't box at all. So it's either Cejudo or Figueroa. Any kind of punching style works in boxing, I guess. So I'd probably lean Figueroa. Women's bantamweight, Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight, Shevchenko. And women's strawweight, Weili Zhang or Rose Namajunas. Then we go to, I can't think of a good name, so this must suffice. Okay, so our trap's gay. I've been asked this many times. I don't know what it means. Even like for my first podcast, people were asking me this. I have no idea what that means. Then we go to Brady Allen. Weasel, huge fan. Been asking the same question for weeks. Hopefully it gets seen this time. But how do you think Gregor Gillespie does versus top 15 at lightweight? I have seen this question before. And the reason why I don't like the answer is because Gregor Gillespie is still not tested. He wants that test, but nobody wants to take it. But if I'm going to have to look at it now, his skill set and everything like that, okay, him versus Dan Hooker would be a very tough fight. But I do think Gillespie will find a way to win a five-round fight in that one. If it's a three-round fight, I think Hooker wins. If it's a five-round fight, I think Gillespie wins. I think Makhachev beats him. I think he beats Hernandez. I do think he pulls it off against Oliveira. I know a lot of people will say that Oliveira could submit him. I don't know, man. I just have a feeling he would beat Oliveira. On paper, I think Oliveira should win because he is a better striker and he has a submission threat. But I just think he might get controlled and Gillespie will find a way to edge it on the cards. So analytically, I would say Oliveira if I were to look at it. But feeling is Gillespie. Anthony Pettis, I think Gillespie wins. I think he beats Barboza. I think he beats Kevin Lee. I think he beats Paul Felder. I think he might lose L.I. Quinta. Maybe. Okay, for this one, if it's a five-round fight, I think I Quinta finds his openings and starts catching Gillespie in the late parts of that fight. If it's a three-round fight, I think Gillespie wins hands down. 
I don't think he'll give Iquinta enough time to figure him out. Donald Cerrone beats him. Justin Gaethje destroys him. With Conor, that would be an interesting fight. I do think Conor might win if he shows up the right way. But man, if Conor gasses out against Gillespie, he's going to get mauled. Because it's a different style of wrestler than Habib. Gillespie will shoot from a distance with power. With that actual American amateur wrestling style. And that is something we've seen Conor struggle with before. I understand he had a bad knee and stuff. You know, Chad was also injured. I think a broken hand broken foot, something like that. But this is a much bigger, much better wrestler in every aspect of the game. I don't know. I go back and forth on this one. I do have a feeling Connor would win this. Dustin Poirier, this would be a tough fight. I have a feeling Gillespie would probably win this and shock the world. But here's the thing. If Gillespie starts taking people's back and starts learning that for this fight, he should be able to do some things against Dustin Poirier. The only thing about Gillespie is he doesn't throw too many ground and pound shots. You will see him do it, and if he does it, he will throw them devastatingly. But he doesn't go for it that often. He usually tries to pass guards and stuff like that, establish position before he applies damage. That can work against Dustin Poirier because he is going to be a little bit more aware of submissions and guillotines and darces. But he's just not going to put Dustin Poirier in that kind of danger. You know, for Poirier to understand, okay, maybe I shouldn't be going for so many submission attempts. You know what? I'm going to stick with Gillespie in this one. Yeah, I'm going to stick with Gillespie because he does have pretty good striking defense, boxing defense especially, and he's a very good ability to shoot. He just has to watch out from the guillotine. If he can watch out from the guillotine and the darts, in case Poirier does sprawl on top, Gillespie should win. He fights Tony Ferguson, he gets cut up and destroyed. Khabib, I think at this stage he will lose to Khabib. Then we go to Van or Von Nomad. How would these fighters fare if they lost one of their attributes? John Jones' reach, he will lose a lot of what he does because his defense won't be the same. He'll completely have to change it. And that will force him to get into exchanges that he's never really been in before. Jones' reach is a huge factor. The only thing is he knows how to use it. It's not just all Jones has a reach, that's why he beats everybody. No, he knows how to use it better than anybody, right? If anybody else had this reach like a Stefan Struve, they won't be able to use it as well as John Jones does. So it will hurt Jones a lot. And a lot of people will be able to get him into danger that he's never really felt in the cage before. Tony Ferguson's recovery. So when he gets hit and gets back up, yeah, no matter who it is, if you have good recovery and you lose that recovery, that's bad news. Because if you get caught, you're pretty much done. You know, Lando Venata probably would have knocked him out. Anthony Pettis probably would have finished him. It would hurt him a lot. It won't hurt his ability to fight. But again, his defense is going to be changed a little bit. Or he'll be more worried about getting hit. Which can change his offense as well. Nate Diaz's chin or cardio. Yeah, this would hurt him a lot. One or the other. Because Nate gets hit a lot. And if he loses that chin, he'll be like an overeem, you know. <laughs> Habib Nurmagomedov's strength. Not too much, to be honest. Because his technique is there. Right? Yeah, you're going to need strength to apply some technical grappling, but I don't think it's a necessary attribute. So I think people still have a very hard time with Habib. Right? Dasapori even said, Habib definitely did feel strong, but he didn't feel something like out of this world. It was really his technique that made the difference. That's what Dasapori was pretty much saying. And you can see it. Remember when Dasapori was hitting those switches? Yeah, some of it was on strength, like grip strength, but a lot of it was also Habib knew how to turn with it and knew how to keep that position. GSP's timing. Yeah, that hurts him. He has some of the best timing ever in the game from double legs to jabs even spinning techniques that he's never really thrown before he threw that spinning heel kick at michael bisping at middleweight and it was a very slow wheel kick and still caught bisping yeah gsp's timing is something out of this world if he loses that he gets a lot easier to deal with such as he'll be more of a panic wrestler it would seem like instead of a even if i'm under fire i know how to time this takedown and that will get him in danger of submissions punishment stuff like that usman and colby's cardio it would hurt them. I don't think it would completely change them as a fighter. It would just change their output and their pressure, right? They will still be able to put some pressure for like the first two or three rounds, but then start fading afterward. And maybe would have to change their pace in a fight. 
instead of throwing like 300, 400, 500 strikes in a fight, half that and apply a little bit more just positional pressure instead of just constantly throwing punches, constantly going for takedowns, right? Just looking for shots a lot more and actually be more like a GSP. I'm not saying GSP doesn't have cardio, but rely a little bit more on timing than just pressure. Francis Ngannou's power. Well, how much power are we talking about? Because that guy has all the power. So let's say he's an average powerful heavyweight. Okay, he still has power to knock you out, but with the right hit, instead of just swinging at the air and giving you a concussion. I don't think it'll completely change you for anybody, actually. If anybody just loses their power, I don't think it'll completely change them as a fighter because the technique is still there, the positional awareness, all that stuff that Nganu has, that will still be there with an ability to still catch people and knock them out with the right timing punch or precision. But will he be that top-ranked destroyer? No, he won't. He'd probably be like a mid-ranked fighter. Yoel Romero's explosiveness. Yeah, this will take a lot. A lot. This is what, even as Paulo Costa fight, this is what he was doing for the most part. Exploding. Just exploding at moments. And this is why people are scared to engage him. Because of his explosiveness. So it will change the way people approach him. Right? There will be a lot more pressuring. A lot more willing to throw strikes at him. Without that risk of getting blasted into the other side of the cage. And this will also force him to be more of a wrestler, I think. Conor McGregor's timing. This hurts him a lot. It won't completely change it because he still has that great accuracy, great precision, good power, good movement. But timing is like his best friend. Precision is the brother of timing. But losing one really does hurt him because Conor needs that kind of timing to really land those precise shots. If he's just throwing precise punching without the timing, yeah, they're going to land on the chin. But... For an example, will he get caught by Eddie Alvarez's overhand right if he didn't have that timing? He caught him right in between the punches. Will Josie Aldo land that left hook first before Conor lands his own left hand? That will completely change the dynamic of that fight. Will Aldo even get knocked out at that point? You know, it changes a lot of what Conor does. I don't think it will change his Nate Diaz fights as much. Because if you notice, Diaz was kind of just sitting on the cage and Conor was just target practicing with him in those first two rounds. And then it became like a slugfest afterwards. So timing didn't really hurt him there. The Alvarez fight a little bit. The Aldo fight might have changed. And the Chad Mendes fight a little bit as well. As well as some of his previous fights like Diego Brandao and Marcus Brimage. Then Valentina Shevchenko's counter ability. It will hurt her a little bit, but she has so much more to her game. Robert Whitaker's takedown defense. Yeah, this will hurt him a little bit because there's so many wrestlers that he's fought, right? Especially Wal Romero. In that first fight, if he didn't have that takedown defense or even against Jacare, would he have lost? Could he have stopped the BJJ of Jacare or the top pressure of Wal Romero? That's an entirely different thing than just, you know, stopping the takedowns and stuff like that. And even if he was taken to the ground briefly by Jacques Ray, his elite wrestling does allow him to stand right back up or escape positions rapidly with that explosive general style that he has. Then we go to Madison Bailey. How did Brennan Schaub fight in the UFC and yet have zero knowledge on the business side of the UFC or on the technical side of MMA? Well, here's the thing. Matt Mitrion put it pretty well before. So he said there's no way he can teach someone how to fight. There's no way he can explain technicalities of MMA, such as skill and stuff like that. Things you learn in martial arts. He pretty much said all he knows is what the coaches tell him to do. And he pretty much just does that repeatedly. Doesn't really think about it too much. And just applies it through muscle memory. So it's not really playing in the head and you're thinking about it, such as like a Conor McGregor or John Jones who are masterminds in terms of technique and stuff like that, or understanding the game at that kind of level. There's people on the other side of the spectrum that only do what the coaches tell them, and they don't really have it inside their mindset, right? And I think Shaw might be on that same side. Like Mamitrione, Brennan Shaw did come from the world of football, uh, American football, and then pretty late came into the UFC, 
came into MMA. And that might be the reason why he probably doesn't understand a lot of what's going on. He just understands if it's himself. Like, he could just do the techniques. But in terms of, like, thinking of the techniques and stuff that a fighter needs to do himself, that's when it doesn't really click, right? And you saw the crazy stuff he said with Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. You saw a lot of crazy things Bernard Shaw has been saying over the past, what, several years. And they're just completely out there. Some people were giving Shaw the benefit of the doubt because he was a fighter and stuff. And that's just appeal to authority. Right. This is why appeal to authority is a fallacy because it's not automatically, oh, whoever's in authority, who's ever been in the field, they automatically know everything there is to know about that field. That is not true. This is a good case of why it's a fallacy to bring in that kind of argument. Back in the day, people liked to point to Schaub about, oh, but Schaub said this, Schaub said this, and I said Schaub doesn't really understand it at that kind of level because of this, 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 and this. Right, the biggest thing was uh, what he said about Amanda Nunes, how Amanda Nunes before she fought Ronda Rousey. For some reason, Shab was saying that Amanda Nunes is some berserker who just marches forward like Chris Cyborg. And she hasn't been like that for years before fighting Ronda Rousey. When she was like that, it was like in the Strike Force days. Like I said, look at her fight with Valentina Shevchenko, which happened years before she fought Ronda Rousey. From there, even from the Sarah McMahon fighting on, which is what Jerogan points out a lot of times, of Nunes impressing him. Look how she fought, moving all over the place, fluid footwork, crisp boxing, great leg kicks. Everything is so smooth with the way she throws punches and the way she moves. She is not that berserker style that marches forward. That was one of the biggest things that really got me thinking about. Does Shaw really know what he's talking about here? The style that he said Nunez had was completely different of what she actually was. And it was so obvious. It's like saying Joanna Janjacek fights like Conor McGregor or something. It's just not the same thing at all. It's so different. And I don't know how someone could start with that point and correlate it to another like that. It's, I don't know. It's just absolutely crazy. But I think where people really started questioning Shab's fight IQ of the sport, especially the technical side of MMA, because the business side, to be honest, I don't know it too much either. So I can't really comment on it too much. Um, I would say Chill Sonnen knows a lot about the business side. He really made like a channel for the business side of MMA and UFC. As far as the technical side of MMA, I think where a lot of people started questioning Shab's knowledge of the sport was around the Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather thing. There was a point where he thought Conor would win. He thinks Conor could win because of certain things. You know, when he was talking to uh, the boxing guy on his podcast, I forgot who that was. When he was talking to Mario Lopez. When Mario Lopez is teaching new things, come on, man. And I was just watching those like, wow, this is not good for us. <laughs> like, people think we're dumb or something, man. You know, and let's be honest, Shaw, Bernard Shaw was pretty much the representative of the MMA side. And it was not good. People thought we were dumb. People thought we, were, we didn't know what we were talking about. We don't know boxing at all. When most of us didn't have the same arguments as Shaw. Most of us didn't think the same thing. Even Nate Diaz went after Shaw for saying the stuff he said. And ever since then, people, more and more of the fans, especially the hardcore fans, and I would say a lot of hardcore fans know a lot what they're saying. A lot more than Shaw, but let's be honest here. And they started like thinking, wow, this is not right. You know, constantly throughout podcasts. And now it's become a big thing where now he doesn't even care about the sport. And I think that's really what it became, you know. Throughout the years, it just seems like he might try to get out of MMA or at least he just completely lose interest of it. And that's pretty obvious, at least in my opinion. And there's also the thing with his co-host and Brian Callen where they will get in these small arguments about MMA and Callen shows some of his MMA knowledge and usually is right in the arguments, usually, which is crazy to think about in terms of how fights should go, what a fighter has to do to win and how historically fights have gone in the past. They've gotten to these little arguments and Callen seems to be right most of the time and that's not good, <laughs> you know? Someone who's like a moderate, casual, soft, hardcore fan being right in an argument where the person that was in the field should know more about. It's almost like it's like a student studying psychology in their first couple of years in college 
get into a small argument about how people can contract a certain disease or certain sickness with a retired doctor and actually the one that comes out to be right whereas the doctor was wrong like it would be very alarming if that were to happen people really take notice of that but of course being a fighter is very different from being a doctor and the process to get to that it's a lot faster of a path to become a fighter than it is a doctor and because of that the knowledge doesn't have to be as extensive so this is why just because authority someone's done it someone's training it does not automatically mean every single time that they know everything there is to know about it and now let's go to the twitter questions we're going to start with at Drew Stouffer. Hey man, really enjoy your videos. You have a great eye for the subtle details. Thanks so much, man. I want to know if you were a coach for one of the top five lightweights, mainly Gaethje, what were your game plan and camp focus on to beat Habib? So for Gaethje, you got to establish pressure. Now, this doesn't mean you just go balls to the wall and just start throwing hands at Khabib wildly. What you have to do is you got to establish pressure right away because Khabib does a lot worse on the back foot than he does on the front foot. When he's moving backwards, he doesn't rely on his wrestling so much. He relies a lot more on his hands or flying knees and stuff like that to break your pressure and get away from this uncomfortable position against the cage. Now, what Gaethje would have to do is keep a fair amount of output, keep a jab extended on Khabib the entire time, and off of this jab, you look for your right hand, uppercut, hook, right straight, right overhand, whatever you see out of Habib's movements, you try to intercept them with the right hand, and if he tries to extend forward on you, lean back and look for that left hook counter, and right away establish the pressure again, cut him off constantly, right? Light kicks can also be a big factor, but you have to set him up behind punches. From that jab, you can even look for a slamming leg kick on Habib because Habib doesn't really get leg kicked at too much, right? So the jab with the pressure is the biggest thing Gacy should be establishing right away in the fight and keeping that as long as he can until that right hand finally connects and hurts Habib. And if takedowns ever get attempted, Gacy, of course, has to be quick to sprawl. And from there, throw strikes. Don't sit there on top grabbing a hold of Habib and trying to turn around him and stuff like that. No, you have to break away from the sprawl, break away from the contact, and from there, look for punches, look for the boxing, look for knees, look for elbows to either get Habib away from you or to create separation yourself, pushing him back. So that's off the top of my head what would have Geishi do right now. Then we go to at Clar underscore German. Hey bro, hope everything's well with your family. Thank you so much, man. Who do you think are the nightmare matchups or bad matchups for Tony Ferguson in both the lightweight and welterweight divisions? So for lightweight, it has to be Habib. Habib's his hardest fight. Because we have seen Ferguson get taken down before and held down by Danny Castillo, even though that was like, what, nine years ago, eight years ago? That's like the biggest chink in his armor that we've seen in terms of getting dominated or controlled. And we know Habib has a higher level than that when it comes to controlling opponents on the ground. Habib also has a way to mix up takedowns with punching and drop opponents like he did to Conor McGregor. And that could potentially work a little bit on Tony Ferguson, but I think Ferguson is not going to fall for something like that. I think Ferguson doesn't care. So if you attempt takedowns, He's going to be right there to fight with you. He'll still throw strikes at you, even when you're faking takedowns and stuff. But I think if anybody could fight Tony Ferguson on the ground, it's going to be Habib. Nobody else can do it, I think. And Habib does have power in his hands that can potentially threaten Tony Ferguson and back him off a little bit more. And Tony does have a decent chin, but he has a better ability to recover than he does a chin. So people could sometimes mix up the two. Sometimes they'll say, oh, but Tony has a really good chin. He took the punch from Anthony Pettis and came back. But that's more of his recovery. The chin aspect is actually him getting dropped, right, twice. That shows decent chin, but it's not one of the best chins in this division. His recovery is out of this world. That's the only thing there. 
So Habib definitely has an ability to hurt Tony Ferguson with a big right overhand. And he does swing pretty wildly, even that lead uppercut. I mean, there's a lot of things Habib can throw out there that can threaten Tony Ferguson on the feet as well. So I would say Habib definitely has the most dangerous style at lightweight and at welterweight now it gets a little bit harder so you got guys like Kamar Usman and Colby Covington who could take that wrestling aspect probably to another level in terms of pressure with it or committing with it constantly but they won't deal with him on the feet at all Tony Ferguson will tear him apart on the feet but who do I think is the nightmare matchup at welterweight for Tony Ferguson I do think Ponzinibbio would be a tough fight but I won't see he's a nightmare matchup I think it would be a competitive fight Colby Covington would be a fun one because they both thrive in the chaos I think it'll be competitive. Off the top of my head, I don't think anyone's like a terrible fight for Tony up there. Some people say Kamar Usman might be him. But the thing is, Usman cannot deal with him on the feet. And even if he takes Tony to the ground, now he has to deal with the elbows that he's never fought up against before. And the jiu-jitsu, which he's never fought on the ground with for an extended period of time with before. So maybe Usman might be the hardest matchup because the wrestling's so strong and he's so much bigger. And he does have a very long reach, so he doesn't have to stay on the inside a little bit where he's in range of all of Tony's attacks from elbows to punches to kicks. It'll just be long-range punching and maybe leg kicks and stuff. So I think Usman might be the hardest fight. Not the most dangerous. The most dangerous is Ponzinibbio. But the hardest fight might be uh, Usman. But I actually do think Tony does very well at welterweight. And then at Apple underscore power, GSP first, top 15 at lightweight. I've done that before. I think he beats almost everybody. And is lightweight still the most stacked division in the UFC? Why not welterweight? Lightweight still is, but every other division is getting up there. Welterweight is super stacked. It's just so complicated these days. Well, if you think about it, you got Khabib and Tony Ferguson, who are pound for pound one of the best fighters in this sport, period. And they're both in the same weight class. And then you have Dustin Poirier, you have Conor McGregor, and Justin Gaethje. And I would say those guys, all of them, would be top contenders pound for pound in any division. Just their skill set alone and the way they fight, it would be hard for anybody pound for pound. Then you have Donald Cerrone, Ally Quinta, and Paul Felder, which is like the next tier. You know, good fighters, obviously. Kevin Lee, Edson Barboza, Anthony Pettis, Gregor Gillespie. Actually, when I'm looking at it, it's starting to get competitive with other divisions because for the longest time, it was by far the best division. And you look at welterweight, so you got Kamaru Usman, Tyron Woodley, Colby Covington, Hori Masvidal, Leon Edwards... Those guys are the best guys, right? Everybody else is like a notch below, I would think, right now until they prove themselves otherwise. So very similar to the lightweight division, you got five guys at the top of the heap that would be competitive in any division pound for pound. And then you got RDA, Nate Diaz, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Darren Till, Stephen Thompson, Damian Maya. That's a strong list, especially for the mid-ranks. That's very strong. Ben Askren, Anthony Pettis, Robbie Lawler, Vicente Luque, Neil Magny. Okay, so here's why I will say lightweight is a little bit better than welterweight. So Habib, Tony Ferguson, Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, Justin Gaethje are heads heads and shoulders above everybody else in that division, right? Welterweight's very similar with Usman, Woodley, Covington, Masvidal, and Edwards. So those are the elite of the division. Which five are better? Habib and Tony, I will say, are better than Usman and Woodley, right? Poirier and Colby. I will say Colby's better than Poirier. I will say Connor might be better than Mazadal in terms of uh, legacy and stuff like that. Justin Gaethje, I would say, is better than Edwards. And another thing is, Habib, Tony, Dustin, Connor, and Justin Gaethje are all former champions of major organizations or current champions in terms of Habib. Usman is the current champion. You got Woodley and Colby. Those guys are champions. Mazadal and Edwards are not. Edwards is coming up in the ranks, of course. Mazal's been in the game for a very long time. So I would say the top lightweight trumps a little bit. Just a little bit. So then you go to Cerrone, Iquinta, Felder, Lee, Barboza. Okay, I guess throwing Pettis, whatever. This is where I think welterweight trumps. 
I think Welterweight in the mid ranks is better than Lightweight. So RDA destroyed Cerrone twice. Nate Diaz versus Iaquinta. I think Diaz can give it to Iaquinta. And he's also beaten down Cerrone before. I think he would beat him again. Ponzinibbio, I think, is better than all those guys listed in the Welterweight mid ranks and Lightweight mid ranks. I think he's the absolute best guy out of those, what, 10 fighters. Darren Till, I think, is better than almost everybody at the mid ranks and Lightweight. He already destroyed Cerrone. You know, and you look at the skill set of everybody else. Darren Till would do very well against all those skill sets. Steven Thompson, same thing. Damian Maya, same thing. And then when you go on the lower of the ranks, so the last five fighters, Gregor Gillespie, Charles Oliveira, Alexander Hernandez, Islam Makashev, and Dan Hooker, I actually do think they're better than the welterweight lower ranks, like Ben Askren, Anthony Pettis, Robbie Lawler, Vincente Luque, and Neil Magny. I think they edge them just a little bit. So yeah, man, it's tough. I would say those two are the best divisions in the UFC right now. Lightweight might be number one. I would say welterweight's number two. Featherweight and bantamweight are right there. They're right there as well. I mean, if you look at Featherweight, you got Holloway, Volkanovski, Brian Ortega, Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Zabit, Korean Zombie. Those guys are absolute elite. And then you have Yair Rodriguez, Jeremy Stevens, Hanato Moicano, Josh Emmett, Kelvin Cater who's coming up, Shane Burgos is coming up, Mursad Bektik, Ryan Hall, Aaron Ellen. That's a very strong division. And then at Bantamweight, Henry Cejudo, Marlon Moraes, Aljamain Sterling, Corey Sanhagen, Petr Jan, Rafael Sansao, Pedro Munoz, Dominic Cruz, Jim Rivera, Cody Garbrandt. Very strong divisions. I just think the top of the lightweight division is just so strong and everything else is so well balanced and the lower ranks is so high level. It makes it look like the entire division is just so high level. You know what I'm saying? When the top and the bottom of the division is so elite, you know that division's good and every other division doesn't really have it to that level. So interesting question, man. Then we go to at balls underscore malls. How do you think a prime Dan Henderson would do at welterweight seeing that guys like Till and Usman walk heavier than him? Isn't that crazy? Dan Henderson fought a heavyweight. He knocked out Fedor Emelianenko. He fought a light heavyweight for much of his career and fought a middleweight. Yet the welterweights today are bigger than he is. Even Tony Ferguson walks heavier than he does. Habib used to walk heavier than he does. And they're lightweights. Yeah, Henderson was always seemed like a small fighter, especially at light heavyweight. At middleweight, he seemed pretty good. But man, the fighters these days are huge. I don't think he does well at all. And he's from a very old generation. He's extremely one-dimensional. I think these guys today would have no problem picking him apart. Even at welterweight. I would even think some lightweights would give it to Dan Henderson. Let's say if they fought at welterweight or something. And let's be honest, Henderson could probably make welterweight. He walked at what? In the 190s? Then we go to at Samoan Tribe 7. Moving down to bantamweight for Frankie will not make things easier. The top 10 are all bad matchups for him. Petrian, Henry Cejudo Morais, Corey Sanhagen, Sterling, etc. He should fight Faber. Both are former featherweights that are legends. Or Dominic Cruz. That would be fun. Yeah, okay. Frankie going down to 135 is the right move, I think. Because these guys are just way too big at this point. He's a wrestler with not good power, relies on technique, but that technique that he's been using for years now has been figured out years ago. People are having a lot easier time fighting him. So going down to Bantamweight, now he is a regular size fighter for the division, and now his strength and power can be more respected. But even at Bantamweight, he's not a big guy. He's going to be a normal size Bantamweight, I think. I think some of these guys are actually bigger than him, like Moise is. Corey Sandhagen's better. Dominic Cruz is bigger. These guys also walk around heavier than Frankie does, which is crazy to think about that Frankie fought a lightweight for such a long time and was a champion there. But it was a different era of the lightweight division. They weren't the same size guys that they are today. BJ Penn, Gray Maynard, all these guys moved around in weight class. The only guy was Benson Henderson, right, that he fought. Benson Henderson's a huge lightweight. But fighting Faber at Bantamweight makes a lot of sense, I guess. They're both legends, like you said, both on the later ends of their careers. They're both looking for a title shot against Henry Cejudo. They did fight before, but it was at featherweight. 
And Bantamweight, it can be a little bit different. I'd like to see it. Why not? The Bantamweight division is a little bit complicated at the top of who's going to get a title shot because people were saying that it was going to be Eljamain Sterling versus Petrion for the number one contender. But now that Sterling is injured and out of the picture and Henry Su is going down to flyweight, which gives a lot of these contenders time to make up the number one contender, who is it going to be? So some people want Faber for some reason. That should not happen. Frank Yeager deserves him more than Faber does. But Josie Aldo said he wants to go down to 135 as well, which is crazy, man, because he has such a hard time making 145 for the longest time. And if he does actually go down and prove to everybody that he can make the weight, Aldo deserves a title shot over Frankie and Faber easily. And if that's going to happen, if Aldo comes down and fights Henry Cejudo sometime in the future, Faber and Edgar should fight each other. Petrion can fight Moise or something like that. Corey Sandhagen's up there as well. Corey Sandhagen versus Moraes is actually the fight I really want to see. Again, Sterling's going to be out for a long time. Man, there's a lot of fights they can make. You know, Aldo, Frankie, Faber, Moraes, Corey Sandhagen, Petra Jan, they're all open. They can all fight each other. But there is that crazy fight a lot of people are talking about, and that is Frankie Edgar versus Conor McGregor. This fight would have made sense a long time ago when Frankie was more in his prime. He was doing very well. Conor was at featherweight. Nowadays, Frankie just seems like that old guy is on the verge of getting out of the sport, and now Conor wants to fight him, or now at least Conor's coach wants to have that matchup. It's a little bit too late at this point, right? I mean, why not just call a Faber? It's like the same thing, you know? I know Edgar and Connor were on the collision course for a pretty long time. They were supposed to fight each other multiple times, or it made sense for them to fight multiple times, and it just never came to fruition for whatever reason. But now it seems strange that Connor versus Frankie is a talk at lightweight. That is such a big mismatch. I absolutely do not want to see it for any reason. I did have a couple debates about this. Some people are saying that, you know, why not it happen? Connor gets an easy fight. Frankie gets paid. But those aren't reasons why I want to watch fights. I want to watch fights if they're fun and competitive, they're technical, whatever it is. If it's exciting, that's what I want to watch. My reasons for watching fights aren't for a blowout while both just get paid. You know, that just seems like a irrelevant fight to me. Connor should stick to a division, I think, lightweight or featherweight, and fight one of the top contenders because he still is one of the top contenders. Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje, those are the fights that make complete sense. Jose Aldo makes more sense to fight Connor than Frankie does at this point. Because if you're going to make the argument that, you know, both of them can get paid, Connor gets an easy fight, then why not do Jose Aldo? Why is no one even talking about that? People want to talk about Frank Yeager because it seems like to be the easier fight. But Jose Aldo rematch would actually be a bigger fight. It would do more for pay-per-view. They would both get paid even more than if Connor fought Frankie. It would draw a lot more interest. And it would be a little bit more competitive at least, you know. I still think Connor blows right through Jose Aldo these days and really destroys Frank Yeager badly. Especially at lightweight. So Frankie fight Faber, you know, that's a good one. Jose Aldo, if he comes down, should probably get the title shot. If not... Someone has to fight Morais and get a title shot or something like that. There's so many guys open. Anything can happen at this point. I have no idea what the UFC is going to do. My personal matchups, I want to see Corey Sandhagen versus Marlon Morais. I'd like to see Petra Jan fight Josie Aldo would be a good one. That would be a really good one. And have Faber versus Frankie Yeager. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you are listening to audio version of this. This is like the first weekly podcast I did in a long time. You know, I'm trying to make these more of a regular thing. So do expect another podcast next week. And this Sunday or Monday, I'm going to post my community tab for you guys to ask your questions under my comment. Just reply your questions like everybody else did on this episode. And I'll see you guys there.